we finally come to chapter three, and uh, chapter three is uh, kind of the beginning. It kind of seems as though Paul is is wrapping up. He he kind of starts off in verse one by saying, "Finally, you know, my brothers," um, but it's not necessarily uh, the end of of the book. He continues to write quite a bit more, and uh, you know, if if you've ever, I mean, I don't. I don't feel like I have this habit, but if you've ever sat in church before, you know, when someone's speaking some theological truth, there's probably about like three or four, like in conclusion, and then like 20 more minutes, and then like another, no, really, and wrapping up, we're almost done. Ah, you know, it kind of just keeps happening. It kind of seems like that's what's happening here with Paul. Um, but Paul is is kind of, uh, you know, he's actually kind of like in the middle of his uh, in, in the book here. And he's going to finish up writing, and he is going to remark about, uh, he's addressing the situation of unity. He's addressing the situation with uh, these teachers who are coming in and trying to allow, who are trying to uh, persuade the Philippians that they, uh, you know, perhaps may need to go through uh, the Jewish experience along with Christ, and very similar to what uh, the Galatian church is experiencing. And Paul is going to kind of write to contrast who he is and speak to his past and, and all that he's accomplished in contrast with that of, of uh, what he already has in Christ and what he currently is experiencing. And, and really what it is is it's a case of uh, investing well, investing in things that are going to last and hold their value. I don't know if you guys um, recall, but in, you know, in like the early to middle 90s, there was this kind of craze where everyone started investing in Beanie Babies. <laughs> you know, if, if you recall, you know, those, those little stuffed animals and uh, were, were filled with those little, uh, those little pellets. And, you know, they were supposed to be, they were supposed to cost about $5. And for whatever reason, some of them got to be a little bit rare. And, uh, you know, something that, that was fairly cheap, all of a sudden the, the prices would skyrocket in value. And, uh, you know, they, they had uh, kind of limited edition ones. And as there was more demand, people started going out and spending, you know, tons of money on these things. Uh, there was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't unheard of for someone to go out and spend like $5,000 on Beanie Babies, you know, because they're thinking like, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to buy all these Beanie Babies and then I'm going to save them and then they're going to be really valuable when I want to turn around and sell them someday. And so instead of saving money, you know, for, uh, for college, for, you know, some people's kids, they would go and they would just buy tons of Beanie Babies in hopes that when the time came, they could cash them in and, uh, you know, they would be able to, um, you know, reap the reward there. But what happened is, uh, you know, as we know today, Beanie Babies aren't a currency that we trade in, and there's not like a huge market for it. In fact, collectors and uh, and uh, auction houses and um, and antique shops and things like that, they won't even accept Beanie Babies. Like they won't even buy them from you if you have them. They're like, we're good. We have plenty of these. We don't need them. They don't hold their value. Uh, I, I was looking up. I was looking up some of the Beanie Babies last night as I was kind of thinking about it and what a poor investment they were. And, and one Beanie Baby that was supposed to, you know, I think it's like its price was like $13 when it originally came out. And then at the kind of the peak, the craze of it, I think they were going for as much as like $350, you know, and I went on to see, okay, what is that Beanie Baby worth today? And it was like worth 99 cents on eBay. <laughs> so it's not even worth the original purchase price. There's a, anyone who, who invested, you know, all of their money in that stupid little bear has now lost a ton of money. And Paul is going to kind of speak to that uh, it, with his situation, with the things that he has achieved in life and the, and the things that he has, uh, has invested his life in. And he kind of compares uh, that, you know, all of his great achievements, all those things that were so great and, and worthwhile, they didn't hold their value like, they, like he thought they would. So he starts off here in, uh, in verse 1. 
and really kind of in verse 1 through 3, with a bit of a warning. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So the first thing that he, he wants us to note is, uh, as he's kind of wrapping up, is he's repeating himself, right? He's been kind of beating this like hammer, uh, or he's been beating this drum, like the whole book, like joy, 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 rejoice in the Lord. I'm rejoicing in you again and again. Um, earlier, we just saw that uh, in the last chapter that he said he's sending Epaphroditus back. So that way, when they would see him, they would rejoice at his presence. And, and he tells them, I want you guys to welcome him home, uh, you know, in the Lord with great joy. So he's kind of telling them, you need to celebrate this guy's faithfulness. And now he kind of repeats this command again. Uh, you know, he's, he's wrapping up and he's trying to tell us again that joy is found in the Lord. It's the only thing that's going to satisfy. He is the source and the object, the parameters in which you will find true joy. Not just circumstantial happiness, but joy. And he's telling them, he's giving them this command together. He's not saying like individually you guys should have joy in the Lord, but rather that joy should be celebrated within the community. Uh, And so he's writing that to them and he's telling them, he's just told them, welcome Epaphroditus home with great joy. You guys should have a huge party for him and celebrate his faithfulness. And then he kind of uh, repeats himself here and then he knows he's repeating himself. So he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Paul's saying, Paul's saying essentially, I can repeat myself with you because we have a friendship. You know, I've been saying this thing and I'm saying it again and I'm saying it again and I know it could probably kind of get annoying. You hear the same thing again and again and again and again. But uh, I, it, it's, it's important. I know that I have this, this freedom to repeat this command to rejoice. I know I have this ability to do that with you because... It doesn't bother me to do it, and it's for your good. He says, it's safe for you. What he means is there, it's, I'm saying this for your safety, so that way you will know that you can find joy in Christ, and you don't need any of these other things. And he wants them to find uh, joy in Christ, because we talked about Paul is experiencing great difficulty in life. He's experiencing great sorrow and trial. He is sitting in a prison cell, and that's the most difficult time, you know, to find joy because you're looking at your circumstances. Uh, but Paul was on to something that, you know, that we all should learn from. It, or all throughout the Old Testament, we see uh, finding joy in the Lord as a place of strength. In, uh, in Psalm 21, verse 1, the psalmist says, O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices, and in your salvation, how greatly he exults. Later in in uh, Nehemiah, verse eight uh, or chapter eight, verse ten, he after some discouragement, here's what uh, here's what is said. Uh, he says, "Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this for this day is holy to the Lord." And do not be grieved. So he's giving them some instructions. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So he doesn't say, when you're sad, you should figure out how to change your circumstances. He says, when you're grieved, you should find joy in the Lord because that will give you strength. That will see you through your difficulty, your sorrow. So Paul is uh, he's telling them, you know, you guys are being oppressed by the Romans. You're experiencing great difficulty. There's uh, disunity in your church. There's false teachers that are on your doorstep. And so you need to find joy in the Lord because when you get your eyes on the Lord, it allows you to see things correctly, right? We always kind of talk about that. When you put your eyes on Jesus, it lets you get your mind right and your game tight, and you're able to operate correctly. And so he gives this warning in verse 2 about these false teachers who are going to come in. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul has just finished commending in uh, the end of chapter 2 uh, those co-workers who have sacrificed their life for the sake of the gospel in, uh, you know, in uh, chapter or verse 29. He says, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ, uh, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So speaking of Epaphroditus there. And now uh, Paul is going to kind of contrast these uh, teachers who were going to come in and try to deceive. 
And he does this uh, by kind of contrasting, and he gives three warnings, and, or he gives one warning, but he says it in three different ways. He says, look out. He says it three times. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he's not talking about three different groups. That's one group who have these three different uh, applications uh, applied to them. And so he says the first thing here is, is pay attention. You know, there's something dangerous, something hazardous. You need to beware. You need to be on guard. And so he's warning them of these adversaries who are going to come in, uh, those who are on, uh, on the doorstep here. And what Paul is speaking to here, uh, the, this group that he's warning them of, that he describes as dogs and evildoers, are false teachers. Those who are going to come in, uh, well... Yeah, I mean, they're false teachers, but more specifically, they are kind of Christian believers. They're, they're more, uh, they are likened to the Judaizers, those who, who uh, he's already experienced in uh, the church of Galatia. It's those who would come in and say that uh, they, they place an emphasis on belonging to the Jewish people. You have to become a Jew. You have to become a Jew before you become a Christian, and you need to keep... Uh, fulfilling the Jewish uh, rituals, the Jewish lifestyle. Uh, these people place this massive emphasis upon that. And, and as uh, belonging to um, that Jewish lifestyle would come with, with all the ceremonial laws and keeping uh, the oral law and things like that, so the cleanliness laws uh, would apply. And, and they would be trying to, to call uh, Christians to keep these laws that they did not have to keep. And so Paul kind of uses this uh, a bit of, of irony and satire in calling them uh, a couple names. He, he gives them, uh, he kind of applies their own terms that they would call, uh, they would call these uh, Christians who were not in, uh, who were not in line with the law. They would, uh, they would be you they would have derogatory terms that were applied to them and paul uses these terms on these teachers themselves he says the first thing he calls them is dogs he says he says look out for the dogs now it's a little bit of a different situation in uh in that day and age now we have dogs and like they get to eat like really good food and you know depending upon what city you live in they can ride in a little suitcase that you pull or your purse or you know they're like different sizes and backpacks and they get costumes and all that sort of stuff but in in paul's day dogs weren't like these lovable creatures that like we let live with us and you wanted to hang out with and pet um in that culture dogs were regarded as unclean they they, they were like considered the worst creatures because they would eat anything they would eat dead animals uh, you know, human corpses. They would, you know, uh, Proverbs speaks of them as eating their own vomit. So dogs overall didn't have a sweet reputation in Paul's day and age. But Paul uh, calls them, these, these uh, teachers, he calls them dogs. And, and it's a bit of a, an irony that he's doing that because the, these Judaizers, these people who would, who would uh, come in and try to say that you needed to become uh, uh, Jews, they, they were excluding Gentile Christians from becoming, uh, or they were excluding Gentile Christians from being clean because they weren't keeping these, these Jewish ceremonial laws, and so they would consider Gentile Christians to be unclean. So they would call, they would call the Gentile Christians dogs. And Paul flips it on them and he says, you guys are dogs. You guys are the ones who were actually unclean because you haven't been washed by the blood of Christ. You are keeping the law, but you're not actually clean. You're living in your own righteousness and your own filth. And the second thing he calls them is evildoers. Now, this is also kind of a bit of a play on words for Paul because by, uh, by nature, the whole point of, of being a teacher there was meant that you had the highest esteem for the law, that you kept the law, and that you were in line with the law completely. And so those who operated outside of it or without regard to it would be considered evildoers. But here, Paul is noting that these 
these teachers are trying to save themselves through the works of the law. So he calls them uh, evildoers. The second reason he calls them evildoers is because they're trying to convert these Gentile Christians to Judaism by requiring circumcision and the works of the law, which you know we know isn't uh, coherent with uh, Scripture. And so they're, misle- they're misleading these Gentile Christians. The, the, the attitude of these false teachers was like a Jesus plus philosophy. Like you need to have, in order to, to have right standing with God, you need to have Jesus, but you also need to keep these religious, uh, uh, you know, ceremonial laws, these Jewish laws. You need to live in a certain tradition. And so Paul says, you guys are the ones who are actual evildoers. The, the last one the last term that he uses for them is those who mutilate the flesh. Now, what he's doing here is he's uh, tying this in with circumcision, and he'll kind of speak to that in a moment. Because circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with his people. It, it meant that you were a Jew and that you belonged to God. And, and it, But Scripture teaches, and it speaks of the fact that if you are, if you have circumcision, but your heart isn't behind it, if it's just outward show, but there's nothing there, uh, there's nothing there that s- says you belong to God in your heart. If your attitude and your actions behind that don't uh, don't follow, then the actual physical portion of it is worthless. There's no value in it. It's completely separate. And so, what 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 happened is when. Uh, what Paul's saying here is these guys who can who, who are circum, uh, circumcised, who are a part of, uh, who, who believe that they belong to God by becoming Jews, Paul's telling them that you guys, that act has no value. And when he says that they're mutilators of the flesh, what he's doing is he's referencing the pagan culture that they're living in, the surrounding pagan culture, because in the pagan culture, what would happen is the, the pagans would try to gain favor with their gods by cutting themselves and mutilating their flesh. They would try to, to have right standing before, God, before their gods and to, to make their sacrifices by cutting themselves. And Paul says, if you guys are doing this in order to gain favor with God, you know, you're, you're no better off than the pagans. You're the same. You, you guys are, you don't, there's no value, there's no action behind it, there's no attitude behind it. And so Paul says, you know, there's not really a point to participating in that. It's worthless, uh, you know, it, it's as worthless as this pagan rite of mutilation of the flesh. Now, he goes on in verse 3, and, and he gives us, uh, he, he gives them a little bit of confidence, and he speaks to their situation. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So the first thing that he tells them is, We are the circumcision. Now, that was a term that meant that you belonged to God. And what Paul's saying here is, is that there's no reason that these Gentile believers should have this physical circumcision done in order to have right standing before God because they already belong to God. He says, you already are the circumcision. It was just a kind of a term, an identity that was given to those who, uh, who were God's people. He says, you guys are already a part of this, uh, of this family of God. You already are a part of that covenant that God made. You don't need to have, uh, you know, you don't need to participate in the covenant of circumcision because God has already, uh, you already belong to it. We know that this uh, worked out. We have a new covenant. Covenant In Luke 22, verse 20, Jesus at the Last Supper stood there with his disciples and, and he took the, the cup and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And he said, he, he says, I, I don't need to have this old covenant that I fulfilled, but rather I'm creating a new covenant with you. And you don't need to participate in this to belong to me, but you need to participate in my body and my blood. You need to, to uh, receive salvation through, by grace through faith in my work. And so Paul is emphasizing that. He's coming back and saying, you got anybody, whether you are a, uh, 
Whether you are a Jewish Christian or whether you are a Gentile Christian, you already belong to the family of God if you've placed your trust in Christ. He says you already are the circumcision. Now he emphasizes uh, three characters, characteristics of those who are in Christ. He says uh, that they worship by the Spirit of God, they glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. So, Paul is consistent with what he's been saying uh, thus far. He, he says that those who are found in Christ, those who belong to the circumcision, uh, they have the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. They worship by the Spirit of God. It, we looked at that uh, in uh, chapter 2. It's the Spirit that works within the believer to will and to act, to will and to do, to have the desire to even do, and to go and accomplish that. And so Paul is emphasizing that again. We worship by the Spirit of God. Uh, the second thing he says is that he, those who are in Christ, they glory in Christ Jesus. Earlier in chapter 1, I believe it is, Paul tells us that his desire is the, the greatest desire of his ministry, what he wants any to happen out of everything is that it brings glory to Christ. It's the only thing he cares about. And, so, and later in chapter 2, he says that we ought not to care or we ought not to operate out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather we ought to consider others more significant than ourselves. So not inward focused, but outward focused, accomplishing things uh, for God and to God's glory. And then Paul will later in 1 Corinthians, he'll quote from Jeremiah 9.24, and this kind of emphasizes his, his heart. Uh, in Jeremiah 9, he says this, But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. So Paul's greatest desire is that he wants to have glory in Christ. He wants us to glory in Christ. Those who are in Christ should glory in Christ and boast in Christ. And if there's anything that you should be glorying in or boasting in, it's that you know Christ, that you know him. And he'll get to that, um, he'll get to that in a second. Uh, the, the third thing that characterizes those who are in Christ is that they put no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul speaks to that from his Jewish background, uh, and it speaks to his descent, his uh, circumcision. It gives, uh, it speaks to his national identity, his ethnicity, his heritage. Uh, it, it speaks to, um, it, it, he'll, get, he'll kind of get to bragging on that in a second. But, but what Paul's saying here is those who are in Christ have taken those things that would be perceived to give them an identity, give them value, and they have sacrificed those things. They've put them away. Paul says, uh, you know, that if you are putting confidence in the flesh, you know, you're essentially saying that that makes you secure before God. It gives you a place of, of comfort and security when you think about your standing before God, the way that what you've done or who you are apart from Christ, it, it, you know, that shouldn't be what defines you, but it should be your relationship with Christ, your acceptance of his work on your behalf that gives you confidence before the Father. And now Paul comes to a point where he will kind of begin boasting a little bit in his background, and he does it, he does it for a good purpose. Um, we'll kind of see what he does, and he, he's going to meet the Pharisees here on their own ground. So he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul defines confidence in the flesh for us uh, in terms of his Jewish pedigree, his upper class social status, he has a blameless moral life, he's a Pharisee, he has, uh, you know, uh, a personal holiness that's well known throughout uh, his land. And then he says, I have confidence in the flesh. You know, I, if anybody has it, I have it. And if anybody else thinks that they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
He's essentially saying, like, I'm the best at this. Nobody can surpass me. He, he sees the competition as these teachers who are coming in. He's like, I can easily one-up you on this. I can easily defeat you in, you know, this competition. But uh, what Paul's doing here is he's going to show that his credentials in confidence in the flesh are so much stronger than these false teachers. It's, they're so much stronger than any uh, Gentile Christian could ever hope to have. And then he'll kind of uh, speak to um, his situation, his background, for the purpose of ridiculing those who place value in the flesh. So he's going to paint this portrait of himself as the perfect Jew. So uh, here's what he does. Verse 5, he's going to give us seven features here in his self-portrait of Jewish perfection, and, and he, def- he breaks it up into two portions, privileges by birth and then personal achievements. So seven features, first part, privileges by birth, second part, personal uh, achievements. Uh, first, por- first per- portion, privileges by birth. He says in verse 5, he was circumcised on the eighth Day. According to the law, you had to be circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, the only other way that you, uh, or, or when you converted to, to Judaism. So by placing his circumcision on the eighth day, Paul's emphasizing that like, he was born into a Jewish family. This is a first-class circumcision. This isn't any second-rate stuff. He's been a Jew his whole life. He was circumcised uh, from the very beginning, it wasn't, uh, you know, if, if these Philippian Christians were to join in with this teaching that they had to become uh, Jews first, they had to become circumcised, it would be way later in life. And Paul's like, I've already done it. I was already better than you. I, on the eighth day, I was there. You're way down the line later in life. I've, I've already beaten you in that. The second thing that he mentions here is that he's of the people of Israel. What he's saying here is that he, he means he's of the race of Israel. He's claiming a, a purity in his genealogical line. He's, he doesn't have any Gentile blood in his line. He is completely pure in that sense. And by using of the people of Israel, he's speaking to both uh, um, a ethnic background, his national heritage, but also the religious uh, portion of being a descendant of Israel and God's chosen people. And so he's, he's throwing down how pure his line is, how, how great his pedigree is. The, the second thing, or excuse me, the third thing that he speaks to, he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's tracing out now his line, how far back it's gone, and, and speaks to the tribe that he's come from. Now this the tribe of Benjamin was a favored tribe, and it begins in the history of Israel with Benjamin himself. And he was loved by Jacob. He was the, favor, uh, the son of his favorite wife, Rachel, and he was the only son to be born in the promised land. So Paul's like, all the other sons were born in the other, you know, in Gentile lands. They were born in these other lands. But Benjamin was born here in the land that God gave. Like, this is how important it is. It is. It was the favorite son. And later uh, we see um, that the tribe of Benjamin produced the first king of Israel. Uh, The tribe of Benjamin was uh, the tribe that maintained loyalty to the tribe of Judah when the ten other tribes deserted David's kingdom. The tribe of, uh, of Benjamin was the tribe that inherited Jerusalem. So it had the holy city also. So Paul's like, we're the best tribe. We have everything. You know, like we get Jerusalem. We didn't jam out when David was in trouble. We have the favorite son. Like I'm, I'm from the best tribe. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. So Paul speaks, he traces out his genealogical line, and now it kind of speaks to his cultural situation. He, he, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. What he's saying here is he's, his fluency in Hebrew is in educational background, his, pers- excuse me, his cultural position, 
And what he's saying here is that he is a Hebrew through and through. At that time, you know, we, and throughout Israel's history, they were kind of always occupied by other lands. They were always under oppression of other people. And there was a point where they were assimilated into the Hellenistic culture and they lost a, a big portion of using the Hebrew language and their commitment to the Hebrew culture. And a part of being assimilated into that culture meant that they would participate in the political structures, the social patterns, education. Um, they would have the, the religious rights of the Hellenists, and they would participate in the culture by and large. But there would be a group of people who were, uh, who were resistant, who would fight back against these cultural changes, and they would protect uh, the language and culture of the Hebrews. And so Paul says, I was one of those. I, I was one of those people who never was tainted by joining in with the Hellenistic culture. He, he's putting himself in the position of one of those people who would, who would rather die than give in to changing his culture and his ideology. His worldview would not be corrupted by these other cultures. He, he didn't lose his uh, use of Hebrew, which was his native tongue. He didn't deviate from his cultural heritage. He was completely through and through Hebrew. And now he comes to uh, his personal achievements. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. He says, I was one of the most influential moral leaders. They were the ones who were experts in uh, studying the law and interpreting the law and communicating it to other people. The name Pharisee means separated ones or, or separatists. And the Pharisees were people who led others in Jewish society away from the Hellenist uh, worldview. They were the ones who, who would speak forth the oral law and call people to obedience of it and, and to, uh, to live by it. And so Paul says, I belong to a group of people who were controlled completely in every area of life by the law. We were law-centered, law-controlled, and law-promoting. We knew it better, we interpreted it better, and we were the ones who applied it uh, to all, and we promoted it, everybody uh, living according to the law. And then he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So Paul says, not only was I zealous for the law, but I was so zealous for the law and so zealous for my nationalistic culture, for, for protecting Israel's heritage, that I was committed to uh, defending the purity of, uh, of Israel even to the point of, of death. If I had to die for it, I would die. And this term is associated with specifically with violence and with the idea of protecting uh, the, the lifestyle, the nationalistic background of Israel. And so Paul would see this uh, manifested in the, his work to persecute the church as the church uh, saw Christ as the fulfillment of the law and not calling you know, everybody to live in accordance with these ceremonial laws. Paul saw that as a problem, and he's like, I'm going to go take care of it. I'm just going to kill all these people. I'm going to deal with it and bring them back, whatever I have to do, to, to protect that. And, uh, you know, Paul, in Galatians 1, verse 13, Paul explains, you know, how, how intense he was. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. According to Acts, Paul was identified with those who attacked Jewish Christians. He was there at the death of Stephen. Anyone who spoke out against the temple or the law, Paul was there uh, you know, to, to, to do battle and to, to kill, um, to persecute in whatever way possible. And so Paul says, you know, from that perspective, I was... I was awesome. I was like, I was so zealous that like I was out on the road, like hurting people and doing what I could to destroy those who would stand in opposition to the law. You know, and then later we see that his actual mindset changes when he meets Christ in first uh, Corinthians uh, 15. He's, he says, I was, I'm actually the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He, you know, we see his mindset change. And then uh, the last thing that he says here about his uh, personal achievement, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So 
Paul means that his quality, or yeah, the quality or character of uh, of his upright behavior was righteous. He he was upright in his study of the law, in his application. He was blameless. Uh, one uh, one commentator defined it this way: the exertion with which he observed scrupulously the law's prescription, interpreted in their most rigid sense led him to attain perfection, which was without lapse or defect. Paul was such an observer of the law that he was, he was blameless, that nobody could speak against his character and say he didn't really keep it. Now, there's a difference, too, here between blameless and sinless. It doesn't mean that he didn't ever sin, but it meant that he performed the sacrifices when he did sin or when he did something that was against the law. There was not a point where it was like, well, I don't really know if he did that or not. He kept the law and he lived according to the law, but he wasn't sinless, but he was blameless. He was made right through sacrifices and, and uh, you know, hit the public opinion was that he was... Uh, he had strong moral performance. He could stand there with that. Now, his argument here is designed to uh, really disarm those who would promote the law. You know, because no one's done it as good as him. No one has kept the law as well as Paul has kept it. And so his, his argument is designed to show the Philippians, like, if you think that they're going to impress you with their talk about keeping the law... Let me tell you something. They're not better than me, and I've kept it way better than them, and everybody knows who I am, and everyone's kept it, or everybody knows that I have kept the law, that I am more of a traditionalist, that my background is stronger than it than anybody else that's going to come and try to sway you or teach you. And so Paul says, you don't need to have you know, these, this confidence in the flesh. You don't need to find your identity in these other things. And that here, here's, he kind of speaks to this now. Uh, about his great investment, his great reputation, his character. He says in verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So this is kind of the point where Paul goes on to eBay and tries to sell his beanie babies like 10 years later and realizes he's got nothing. All the money, all the time and effort that he spent crafting this character you know, all the, all the, uh, the effort, the sweat that he's put into it, he kind of comes to the realization that all of that work was for nothing. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, Paul puts together this story of his transformation to show th- these Philippians that uh, you know, his choice to renounce th- this traditionalism, this, uh, you know, circumcision of the flesh or, or confidence in the flesh, excuse me. He puts it together this so that they would know that this too is a choice that they're going to have to make. That it's not just going to be something that they can go on autopilot, but they're going to have to make a choice to actively trust in Christ rather than trusting in themselves in their uh, ability to keep the law. They're going to have to join Christ in his humiliation and his exaltation. And Paul demonstrates not only that he was able and willing to give up his culture, his heritage. He was willing to give up uh, you know, all of his connections. He was willing to give up his ethnic background. All of those things he was willing to give up. Uh, you know, for the sake of Christ, to be like Christ. And, and what Paul does here, this is brilliant, because, uh, you know, as we went over the Christ hymn a couple weeks ago and talking about how Christ, uh, in the Christ hymn, it describes the process of Christ's, uh, his preexistence, what he was before, how great and how glorious he was. But then he emptied himself, right? He emptied himself and took the form of a servant, and then being found in, that, in the form of a servant, God exalted him to the highest place. Paul lines up his life along Christ's narrative. And so here he says, whatever gain I had, all the things that, that I would use to my advantage, I put them off. I emptied myself. I, too, like Christ, got rid of all my nationalism, all my ethnic heritage, and only uh, trusted in Christ. 
And so he's, he gives us this new kind of self-portrait of himself. Not, here's what I have done, but here's who I have become. In verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's, you know, all of his, all of his uh, gain beforehand, his, his self-worth, he had more than everybody. And he would have been considered to be incredibly wealthy uh, in terms of social and uh, religious situation. But now he says, I count these things as loss for the sake of Christ. He's realized that these things are worthless, that he's got nothing. And so when Christ becomes the goal of his life, he sees that those things, they don't hold value. But his life in Christ is the thing that holds true value. And so these things that he's considering, the, uh, his birth, the things that he's had from birth, and uh, his personal achievements, the perfection of his righteousness based on the law, those things are counted for uh, as a loss for the sake of Christ. But now he goes even further. Look at verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul expands his view beyond that. He goes even further, and he's, he says, Everything is a loss compared to knowing Christ. When you consider it, all the things that, that I might want to hold on to, everything is a loss. Anything that would compete for my allegiance uh, or compete with Christ for my, for my allegiance, those things I consider to be a loss. And he says that Christ has surpassing worth, that, that, it, that he holds worth beyond all things. The, the quality and value of knowing Christ, it completely surpasses anything else in life. And so Paul, Paul's understanding of knowing and enjoying Jesus changes everything for him. It changes the way that he lives his life. It gives him direction in his day-to-day uh, life. It gives him the ability to submit his life and his thoughts to Christ. In 2 Corinthians, he speaks to this uh, where he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul says, Anything that comes out of me is brought into submission of knowing Christ. I take it and I submit it to him so that my allegiance would be ultimately to Christ and let him filter things back through me and give them give me his thoughts. So Paul says, I, I want to know Christ. I've, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he goes on and says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul reminds his friends, I, this has cost me everything. All the things that I had, all those things that were in the gain column, in, in my revenue column, all of those things have been moved over to loss. He's wanted to, he wants to make this statement that makes it completely clear that his commitment to Christ, in that he not only lost all of the things that he considered to be gains, but that he also suffered hardship and loss. He suffered difficulty at the things that he was trying to invest in. And so he's giving this out there as an example in order to uh, come against these teachers who will come in and try to convince the Philippians uh, to operate according to Jewish law. He says, I had everything, and when it came down to it, those things weren't worth anything, and now those things are hardship. So whatever you think that they're going to offer you, it's not going to be better than what I had. I had the best situation coming into this, and... It didn't pan out very well. So it's not worth it to invest your time. Don't be swayed by, by trying to take advantage of belonging to the Jewish community. There's not a point in that because it's not going to benefit you. You're only going to be led into bondage rather than freedom in Christ. And so Paul says, you know, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So the word that Paul uses there for the, all the things that he has, uh, has lost, he, he uses a word uh, rubbish there. It means uh, manure, garbage, excrement, uh, specifically pertaining to human excrement. He uses the worst possible term to describe the things that were once uh, most valuable to him, the ones that things that he could brag on, the things that people would admire him for. He now says those things, 
They are nothing. They're complete garbage. They're complete trash. It's not even something that I would hold on to for another day. You know, oftentimes when we have something that we think might hold a little bit of value, it's like, well, save it. Might want to use it one day. Might want to, like, put this into action one day. There'll be a time where, like, I'm going to, this will come in useful and someone will want this. And I'll be like, oh, here. Paul's like, I'm just getting rid of it. Paul's not packing it away for the future. He's getting rid of it completely. His goal is to gain Christ, and anything that stands in the way of that goal becomes worthless and garbage to him. If it's something that challenges his ability to know Christ and to gain Christ, he's just going to get rid of it completely. And so uh, now he tells us about knowing Christ. In verse 9, he says that we... <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, let me roll in from verse 10. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul says that in the way to gain Christ, it, it, it means that you're found in him. Paul's greatest desire was to gain Christ. And now he says that we must be found in him. So Paul, Paul desires to be found in Christ, just as, Paul emptied, uh, just as Christ emptied himself of all the things that would be to his own advantage. Paul empties himself out of all the things that he would consider valuable in order that he might take the form of Christ, that he might gain Christ and be found in Christ. And so Paul is patterning his life and living in a way that uh, is after Christ's narrative. <clears throat> then he goes on, he says, uh, not having a righteous of, righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So Paul says there's another kind of righteousness, not a righteousness that comes, that's achieved, because that's what Paul has tried to do thus far with the law, he, he's tried to achieve righteousness through his good works. He says that these other, um, you know, these other uh, teachers who are going to come in and try to deceive, they have tried to achieve righteousness through keeping the law. <coughs> they have tried to achieve righteousness through circumcision and showing that they belong to God and trying to please God. So Paul says there's another type of righteousness that isn't achieved but is rather received. It's something that is given to you and that you receive. And, and so he, he's referring to the work of Christ. It, it is given to us because of Christ's faithfulness and because of God's goodness. It, the righteousness uh, that from the law that Paul refers to there, first off, is obedience to the law. And then he stands in contrast with the righteousness that is given from God. He says, uh, it's, it's not righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And, and so I w we want to draw um, some clear lines here because it's not that God helps you be good and keep the law. Like, okay, now it's, here's a righteousness that comes from God and God will empower you to help you keep the law so that way you will be good enough in order to, uh, to belong to his family, but rather that Jesus has already kept the law perfectly for you and you receive something that's already complete, not something you have to put together. There's no assemble at home instructions for this type of uh, righteousness. Paul speaks to this in Romans 4, uh, verse 23 through 25. Paul says, but the words, it was counted to him, when he's speaking of, it was counted to him as righteousness, uh, speaking to Abraham there, were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, and uh, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Later in Romans 9, Paul will go on in verse 30. He will say, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed it in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it was, were based on works. So Paul highlights what he's, what he's meaning here with his, his uh, argument in uh, the book of Romans. He says the Gentiles, they got righteousness because they pursued, uh, they, they pursued it by faith. 
but rather Israel, they pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, but they did it by making the law the end goal, but instead of faith, the end goal. And so he, he says that it's bound up in having faith, and this faith is given to us through our trust in Christ. It's the righteousness of God that, that saves us. And Paul is, is uh, noting there that this righteousness is from God, it belongs to God. He's not viewing this type of faith or righteousness as uh, a human work but as God's work on our behalf. And so when we contrast these types of righteousness, faith in Christ looks away from our own self-righteousness, our own self-achievement, and it looks to Christ. And so if you want to kind of weigh out what you're living in and trusting in and, and placing your faith in, if it's looking internally, then it's not based upon Christ. But if it's looking to Christ for his work and his righteousness, then it is faith in Christ. And then he wraps up uh, this, uh, this section in verse 10, and he communicates some of his goals. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's goals here are all Christ-centered. He wants to gain Christ. He wants to be found in him. He wants to know him. That's like all he, he wants, all he's speaking to. So he says that I may know him. He, he wants to draw this contrast between his former life uh, in Judaism, where he was trying to live according to the law, and his present life in Christ, where he's living through, uh, with the goal and motivation of knowing Christ. Uh, in his life in Judaism, he would try to live every day in light of keeping the law and living a way that is upright and, and blameless so that he would uh, be known as someone who kept the law and would have right standing before God because of his action. But now in his new life, in, his, in, in faith in Christ, he lives every day just wanting to know Jesus, just wanting to know Jesus more and more. He says that I might know him. And this knowledge that he's speaking of is not knowing about him, but rather something that's relational. It's experiential. He wants to have personal, intimate knowledge of Christ. And, and, and so Paul's calling us, likewise, to live out our lives in that same way. To have this uh, understanding of knowing Jesus daily. Uh, you know, he, He's speaking almost in the words of Christ of coming daily to the cross and denying ourselves and taking up that cross and following him. And so uh, Paul does that. He's calling us to do that. And now he kind of expounds on that meaning and, and expounds on that, um, that power and suffering in the next uh, verse through the, the types of knowledge we will have of him. He says the first thing, that we would know uh, the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings. So he wants us to know these two, and they're linked together. You can't know uh, the power of his resurrection without sharing in his sufferings, and you can't share in his sufferings without knowing the power of his resurrection. They're, they're linked together. And knowing the power of his resurrection, knowing that Christ has resurrected, it, it provides incentive, it gives us strength to participate in the suffering of Christ. Christ has suffered, Christ has overcome death, and he has already defeated, you know, the greatest thing that we fear. And Paul grew in his knowledge of Christ through participating in his sufferings. The way that, that Paul knew Christ more was because he participated in the sufferings of Christ. He was, he was uh, you know, under oppression. He was out and, and facing persecution and difficulty. He was he, he was enduring these things on behalf of Christ as he represented Christ out in the culture. And when he did that, he knew Christ more because he experienced things that Christ experienced. And Christ was comforting him and giving him, uh, you know, uh, direction and wisdom. And so Paul's not just saying, I want to know Christ and I want to know about him. He wants to experience it. He's intentionally participating in this narrative. Remember what... Paul patterns his life. So Paul has emptied himself of his own gains. He has been found in Christ and he's taken on this new form of a servant. And now 
what happened with Christ. He was obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Paul is now out and about living that way. He wants to participate in his sufferings, even the death of the cross. He's out there experiencing that. He says, if we want to follow in the footsteps of Christ, we too must know Christ by participating in his sufferings. We have to empty ourselves of our own gains. We have to fill ourselves with him and be found in him. Take the form of a servant. Go and love and serve each other. And in doing that, we will experience these sufferings. When we pattern our life after Christ, you will inevitably experience these things. But then also, it's tied in with the resurrection of Christ. Because what happens after we see in the Christ hymn, he was obedient even to the point of death, the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above all names. Now, we're not getting the name that's above all names, but we get to be resurrected with Christ. Uh, we, we get to experience this new resurrection and, and uh, just as Christ was resurrected. And, and uh, Paul is speaking to this this to uh, the church, not in an individualistic sense, but in a communal sense. This is a project that the church works on together. We grow in our knowledge of Christ as we love and serve each other. We grow in our knowledge of Christ as we ex share in his sufferings together, and that uh, you know we go deeper in relationships with each other and with Christ through experiencing uh, these situations of suffering and and being drawn together in him now he also says uh, that he might become like him in his death so paul might be referring to a couple things here uh, he might be referring to his martyrdom that he's experiencing so that's a reality and it, and it in reality it's all three of these things uh, it might be a reference also to the inward experience of dying uh uh it might be really to the, you know, the dying to self and being united with Christ by being crucified with Christ, kind of what we see worked out in Romans 6. Um, and then it also might be speaking of that we are being obedient in death, just as Christ was obedient in death that we see worked out in the Christ hymn. He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Paul's saying, you know, he wants to become like him in his death. And what, what do we know about Christ's death? How was Christ's death and what Paul seeks to highlight? The thing that we know about that is it was willing and it was with obedience. So Paul's essentially highlighting here that he wants to be obedient to what God is calling him to do. He wants to be obedient even if it means uh, his own death. He wants to be obedient to the point where uh, his obedience will bring God glory. And then he says in verse 11, he wraps it up, he says, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So he ends on that same note as uh, the Christ hymn ends on. Death does not have the last word. It says that Christ was obedient unto death, but then therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above all names. So here in our text, Death does not have the last word here, but rather he speaks to resurrection from the dead. He's emphasizing that Christ has already defeated death. He, he has come against the last enemy and won. And so when, when Paul is weighing these things out for the Philippians, he's saying there's, when you're dealing with life and death, when you're dealing with placing your trust in something for eternity and valuing something, you better invest in something that's not going to lose its value, you know, in 10 short years. You better invest in something that is going to, to hold its value and, and will be uh, of the greatest worth. And Paul says all the ceremony, all the religious ritual, those things turned out to be big, giant losses. But the thing that I did exchange those things for was something that was of surpassing worth, something that is infinite and never loses its value. He exchanged those things for Christ. And so that's what he's calling the Philippians to, to shy away from these false teachers who would come in. That's what he's calling us to this morning, to live in a way that is uh, patterned after wise investing in something that does not lose worth 
you know, namely that the work of Christ upon the cross. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to work in us as we, uh, as we fight against our own tendencies to justify ourselves and uh, become self-righteous and try to keep the law and prove that we're good enough. We need to remember that we already are good enough because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So let's, uh, let's pray, ask the Lord to work in us this morning. Lord, we're so thankful for your faithfulness to us. We're thankful that Christ has already accomplished the perfect work on our behalf and that we can have salvation uh, because of Christ. We can have faith in Christ and celebrate uh, what Jesus has done. So we pray, that, Lord, that you would help us um, to find our identity in Christ, not to feel uh, the desire to justify ourselves or to become... Uh, keepers of the law for the purpose of knowing you uh, and trying to prove ourselves before you, Lord. We're thankful that you have already accepted us, you've adopted us, you've made us your own people. And so, Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to live God-glorifying lives.